Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books. Welcome to week 50, 11 books to go. And this 11th one elicited baffled looks from various friends and family when I mentioned that this was a play I had really come to love. I made my first acquaintance with the characters of this play through the immortal work of Gossini and Uderzo. Asterix and Cleopatra is the sixth of the Indomitable Gaul's adventures. We do not need to linger on the abomination that is the film version with Gérard Depardieu as Obelix. The other film version I encountered was the Mankiewicz one, the excessively long Cleopatra, starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, which I remember watching with my father at some point in my early teens. It was profoundly dull. I remember nothing very much apart from processional gongs and clashing cymbals as Cleopatra paraded around with a lot of eyeliner. At university, I read nearly all of Shakespeare's plays, including the Roman ones, Coriolanus, Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra. But when it came to the actual exams, I focused on the plays which I loved and knew well already. The comedies, the tragedies and the romances, The Tempest, The Winter's Tale and Cymbeline. I reread Antony and Cleopatra just after graduating in 1986 and just before going to see a production at the Haymarket Theatre with my mother. We were very excited. Vanessa Redgrave was playing Cleopatra and her then partner, Timothy Dalton, was Antony. It ought to have been brilliant. Sadly, it is memorable for being one of the worst productions of any play I have ever seen. The pace was all wrong. There seemed to be little or no chemistry between these two lovers. And by Act 4, when Antony has fallen on his sword, but not yet died, he is carried to Cleopatra. They talk, he declares, I am dying, Egypt, dying. They mourn their failures and he repeats this phrase, by which time there was a distinct sense in the audience that he was taking much too long about it. Little did we know that Dalton and Redgrave were about to split permanently after 15 years of a volatile and tempestuous relationship. I'm not selling the play, am I? But it is a terrific play, and on rereading it for this podcast, I found it curiously contemporary. The moment I began to realise how terrific it is was as I was teaching it to a group of six formers in Brussels about 12 years ago. At that time, with the European Baccalaureate, we were given an overarching theme and then allowed to design our sixth form course as a response to the theme. I love this approach and have been more or less able to apply it with the IB Literature course as well. The first set theme I taught was Journeys, and this gave me the opportunity to teach Heart of Darkness in my first year at EEB2 2004, the Wallaway European School. Our then director came to observe me when we were doing feedback following a visit to the then wildly politically clumsy Africa Museum in Tervuren, which in 2004 to 2005 put on its first ever fully curated exhibition about Leopold and then the Belgian state and their colonisation and the way that that particular adventure unfolded. Monsieur Sphingopoulos, a history teacher himself, said afterwards rather tartly, in Belgium we do not discuss such things, but we will be discussing them a little bit further in a few weeks when we actually turn to Heart of Darkness. Back to Antony and Cleopatra. 
Our theme was love and marriage. We had studied Sarah Waters' Fingersmith, see week 42, Hardy's Return of the Native, Albie's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Patrick Marber's Closer, which in some respects is an homage and an updating of aspects of the Edward Albee. And then our classical play was Antony and Cleopatra. There is a lot of doomed love in Shakespeare's plays. Romeo and Juliet, of course, Othello, which will be the last of Shakespeare's plays in this series, the catastrophic Troilus and Cressida, to name a few. For me, Antony and Cleopatra is by far the most interesting and vivid. Perhaps it is because I came to the play properly as a middle-aged woman. Antony and Cleopatra are definitively middle-aged in the play. In real life, Antony was 53, Cleopatra 39, when they committed suicide in 30 BC. But I get ahead of myself. I would love to direct this play, but it is a challenging one. When acted well, it is beguiling and compulsive. After rereading it this time, I could not help but think of Succession, the darkly comic series about the Roy family and their infighting over who will take over the media behemoth their father has created. There was the harsh, speedy dialogue, the twists and turns of relationships and plot, the charm offensives, the disastrous encounters, the vagaries of human behaviour and the unforeseen consequences that undermine any planning. Throughout Antony and Cleopatra, there are observers who watch, who comment on the behaviour, the choices, the personalities of both our leading characters. The play opens with one of these exposition scenes with Philo, one of Antony's more jaded men, commenting on the louche behaviour, the loss of focus, the degradation of Antony. In come the lovers, and we are given the opportunity as an audience to judge for ourselves whether Philo, Philo is correct in his assessment of Antony, transformed into a strumpet's fool. The relationship is tangible. If I were directing this, I would want both my Antony and Cleopatra clearly infatuated with each other, but also equally clearly like swimmers coming up for air, suddenly aware of just how disastrous this relationship is. They adore one another. They adore what they do together. The drunken revels, the switching of clothes, the partying, the dancing and hopping down the street, playing pranks on each other as well as any unfortunate members of the populace who meet them. If they had had Cars and Amy Winehouse at the time, we would all be anticipating crashes and singing, you know I'm no good, at each other. They revel in their lust and their longing, but throughout the play, they also switch in and out of leadership mode, their charisma, their political acumen, their adult selves. With each other, they can be childish, petulant, capricious, each seeking to outdo the other in temper, magnificence, decisiveness and command. They both inspire deep loyalty and affection. Iris and Charmian, Cleopatra's invented handmaidens, are highly protective and loving towards their wayward mistress, whilst Antony's men admire him even as they see his flaws and failures. One of the most compelling and engaging characters in the play is Enobarbus, friend and lieutenant to Antony, loosely based on a real character. Enobarbus is, from the opening of the play, cynical, untrusting, at once suspicious and admiring of Cleopatra, her wiles, her manipulative tricks and her political competence. It is he who gives the famous speech 
Shakespeare's adaptation of Plutarch's description of Cleopatra's first encounter with Antony. The barge she sat in, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which, to the tune of flutes, kept stroke, and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. For her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue, her picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. On each side her stood pretty dimpled boys, like smiling cupids with diverse coloured fans, whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool. And what they undid, did. Enobarbus is simultaneously devoted to and disgusted by Antony, as with his real counterpart, exasperated by Antony's failures and Cleopatra's hold over him, he defects to the enemy, Octavius Caesar, adopted son of Julius. Antony sends all of Enobarbus's men, treasure and possessions after him. This magnanimity drives Enobarbus to self-loathing and the ultimate despair. In some predictions, he overtly commits suicide. In others, he collapses, heartbroken, both by Antony's downfall and his own treachery. Antony wrestles with his infatuation. He knows that the whole classical world is at stake, but he cannot resist Cleopatra or the idea of the two of them ruling the world as it was known in those days. Throughout the play, the puritanical, dutiful, serious world of Rome is placed in opposition to the wild delights of Egypt embodied in its queen, sensual, mocking, witty, fun, powerful, mighty, capable. Cleopatra is compelling, independent, powerful, and there is a wondrous power in knowing that she is enthralled by Antony. As the play opens, he trumpets his hubris. We stand up peerless! From that moment, we know they are doomed. In Shakespeare, any promise, any boast, any oath is a hostage to the spiteful mockery of fortune, luck and success and reverse. The Romans constantly seek to mock and belittle Cleopatra. Both she and Mark Antony do present themselves terribly. They're brutal and brutish, battering messengers, consumed by furious rages, wayward, hurling vile insults at one another. Besides them, in theory, Octavius should seem more attractive, particularly when Shakespeare knew well enough that he would shortly become the Emperor Augustus, arguably, if you are to listen to Tom Holland and Mary Beard, one of the most successful rulers not simply of the Roman Empire, but of all time. Shrewd, calculating, self-aware, Octavius is strategic, measured. Although he was in his early 30s at the time of Actium and the events of the play, he is presented by Shakespeare as younger, fastidious, repelled by the boisterous boozing of Antony, disgusted with himself and those around him in the great drinking scene late in Act Two, in which the strains of the triumvirate are clearly delineated. The timeline of this play is 
complicated. Shakespeare essentially compresses years in the play and there are abundant confusing scenes where it isn't entirely clear where people are in Egypt, in Rome, on Pompey's ship, off Pompey's ship, fighting on the land, fighting off the land. The play can seem fragmented and confusing as people rush on and rush off with news of victories, defeats, alliances and breaches. The action is diffuse and geographically distant. There is a sense of a big and busy world beyond the palaces and temples. In the four best-known tragedies, Lear, Othello, Hamlet and Macbeth, there is a sense of claustrophobia, of containment, confinement, of a narrowing of perspective. Denmark is a prison, Lear must disquantity his train, Cyprus is an island and Othello's world ends in his bedroom. Macbeth has murdered sleep and sanity. There is an inexorability to the deaths that close these tragedies. But Antony and Cleopatra is a different sort of play. The characters are people of the world, ruling the universe as it was known, deeply involved in the affairs of men, busy, decisive, managing, leading, sending and receiving dispatches, moving from one part of their domains to another. In this context, the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra is shocking. It's like catching the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies ripping off their clothes in a boardroom. They are public figures, as the constant commentary from Egyptians and Romans alike makes clear. Despite the foreshadowing of the inevitable end of this play, whenever I read it or see it, I keep hoping that somehow Antony and Cleopatra will survive. They are monsters. They are atrocious and arrogant. And they are full of vivacity and energy. Their outrageous behaviour is appalling and attractive because they challenge the conformity, the respectability, the hypocrisy of Roman conduct, concealing, as it does, equally ferocious ambition. Throughout the play, Antony is compared to Hercules, the demigod, the hero and his protector. The moment I think I find most haunting and poignant of this play comes in Act 4. There are four soldiers keeping watch in front of Cleopatra's palace in Alexandria when they hear strange music. They pause, they listen and they realise, as one says, "'Tis the god Hercules whom Antony loved now leaves him.'" It seems fitting to recall the wonderful poem written in 1911 by the great Greek poet of the 20th century, Constantine Kavafi, which embodies both that sense of inevitable decay of luck, of power, of position, of dreams and life itself, and the need to meet this inexorable fate with dignity, with grace, with stoicism. The God abandons Antony. When, suddenly at midnight, you hear an invisible procession going by with exquisite music, voices. Don't mourn your luck that's failing now. Work gone wrong? Your plans all proving deceptive. Don't mourn them uselessly. As one long prepared and graced with courage... Say goodbye to her, the Alexandria that is leaving. Above all, don't fool yourself. Don't say it was a dream, your ears deceived you. Don't degrade yourself with empty hopes like these. 
as one long prepared and graced with courage, as is right for you who proved worthy of this kind of city. Go firmly to the window and listen with deep emotion, but not with a whining the pleas of a coward. Listen, your final delectation to the voices, to the exquisite music of that strange procession, and say goodbye to her, to the Alexandria you were losing. Join me next week for a celebration of Homer, a wonderful and eccentric book, The Mighty Dead, Why Homer Matters, by Adam Nicholson.